before your place. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Peter writes this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to you all, especially if you are visiting with us this morning. This is a very exciting day for us as a church, and we are really, really glad that we could share that together. As, pa as Luke said, my name is Bill Smith. If we've not yet met, I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are wrapping up our very short Missions Month series today. Uh, it's been a focus uh, on the mission of the church, and so we've heard from a couple missionaries. I think that today's installation service and commissioning service very much fits into the overall sense of a correctly functioning mission church. And yet, as I think about the goodness of the last several weeks, I do want to offer us a caution this morning. Because there's a sense in which if you've been with us over the last couple weeks, that you could walk away thinking that there are two different kinds of people in the church, two kinds in any church, that there are the super spiritual kind, there are the movers and the shakers within Christianity, the missionaries and the church leaders, the frontline Christians, the doers, if you will, and, and there's those people and then there, there's all the rest of us. And if you fall into that way of thinking, into that trap, it can start to feel like our responsibility for the rest of us, the place that we have in the kingdom of God, that our responsibility is to watch them do what they're supposed to be doing. That our responsibility is to support them, pray for them, hear their updates, hear their reports, cheer them on, maybe even provide for them, but there's really not a whole lot else for the rest of us to be doing. And so it's possible to walk away from these last couple of weeks thinking that our role in the Christian life is essentially passive that we sit back and we observe others while they do the work of the Christian life. Now, I'm tempted to believe that, that some of us actually like that idea, that some of us look at that and think, okay, man, th th this is a version of Christianity that I, I, I can get into. It doesn't make too many demands on me, and so secretly we're, we're relieved with that bifurcation. We think, okay, I can just set up like a recurring debit on my bank account to help send someone overseas, and then I can forget all about this. I can go back to real life. Or I can pray when I'm handed a calendar that I'm supposed to put on my fridge. I, I can do that. I can take a few minutes to pray, do my part, and then get back to real life. Some of us like that idea. Others of us don't like the idea, but in our minds, we don't really see a whole lot of alternative 
feels like there's something off with that way of thinking about the Christian life. We're not really sure what, and we really don't know what to do about it. And so when we think about our lives, about how we spend the majority of the rest of our week, it feels like we live in a very different, completely different world. We're immersed in things like finance, in working with buildings, in infrastructure, in technologies, creating technologies, advancing scientific knowledge. We're in healthcare, we're in childcare, we're in education, all good things, things that we love to do, but things that seem very far removed from what we ordinarily think of as church. And so some of us start to think, well, maybe, boy, maybe I'm not doing what I should actually be doing. Uh, maybe I should think about going overseas. Or maybe I, th I should think about throwing myself into something in the church that would be a little more meaningful. Now, I want you to hear me. There's nothing wrong with thinking about going overseas. There's nothing wrong with serving in an official capacity in the church. If God is stirring up something like that inside of you, run with that. Spend time talking with him. Talk with other people. See what that might mean for you. But if you see that as qualitatively different from, what, from, from the normal Christian life, you're missing the point. Because the Christian life is not split between hobbyists and professionals. It's not split because it's not a hobby. It's not something that you drop into and then drop out of. It's some, not something that you watch a small group of people turn a hobby into a career. Instead, the Christian life calls for what? It calls for 100% of you, 100% of the time. The only thing that changes is where you're living out that 100% and with whom you're living it. Are there specialized niches for some Christians that come with certain labels and names? Yes. But please don't fall into the error of thinking that those people then are qualitatively more spiritual. And don't think that the work that they're doing is more spiritual. Let me be a little provocative. From one very important perspective, what you do every day because of who Christ has made you is just as spiritual and it's just as specialized. You are uniquely trained. I don't care who you are. We'll spend enough time talking together. You will see that you are uniquely trained to go into a spot that very few other people can get into. Let's take students, for example. Students, let me speak to you, and I don't, it doesn't matter whether we're talking middle school students, high school students, college students. Students, you speak the language of student. You know what to say and what not to say to fit in with other students. You get the culture of being a student. You get the struggles of being a student. You get the joys of being a student. You know the things that are on the hearts and minds of students. And you get modern students in a way that no one else can. Your parents may have been students at one point in time. I get that. But as they talk with you about what their experience was like, you realize pretty quickly it's very different now. I want to let you in on a little secret. That's always been the case. My experience as a student was very different from my parents. Their experiences of students was, was very different from their parents. And so students, you rub shoulders with people that you understand and who understand you in a way that not very many other people in this area do. You are every day engaging with people that no one understands quite as well as you do. 
And those people with whom you spend most of your time are for the most part not likely to come to church. So what has God in his wisdom and his sovereignty done? He's decided to send church to them. He has sent you. You're the one who represents him to other students. You are a missionary. You're his representative. You're his missionary. Now we'll back up a little bit, and you realize that that's not true simply of students. It's true of everybody else in this room. Everyone is uniquely positioned to rub shoulders with people that you understand better than anyone else. Whether those people are your colleagues, whether they are businessmen and businesswomen, whether they are people in your neighborhood. For some of you, it's grandparents. You understand what it is to be a grandparent better than anyone else. Some, for some of you, it's your children. But it's someone with whom you have spent time, a significant part of your life. You've argued with them. You've collaborated with them. And you get that group of people in a way that the majority of the rest of the people across the region of Philadelphia do not. And you are there in that space, in part, because God sent you there. And he sent you there very intentionally so that the people around you would have a chance to see what he's like. To see what he's like in a world that has basically turned its back on him, in a world that has rejected loving him and rejected being loved by him, and therefore it's a world that's very dark. It's a world that does not know how to fix itself, that can't fix itself. And no matter how hard it tries to be good and moral and just, something always breaks. And so we live in a world that is constantly dissatisfied because its expectations are never met. But they're still there. And God in his mercy has put you in the middle of that. It's not always easy. You're not always wanted there. But that is why you're there. Very similar, then, to the background of the book of 1 Peter. You read the book of 1 Peter and you realize that God's people live in a very harsh world. They suffer at the hands of people who are more powerful than they are. They suffer when they haven't done anything to deserve it, when they were simply being good to other people. And the call of the book, the solution to living in that harsh world, is not to figure out some way to outpower the powerful. Not to, you know, let's find some way to take our society back and force it to be what you want it to be. The solution is not to overwhelm society. The solution is not to pull away, to hunker down, go under the radar, and hope that after about 80 years, this will all be over. The solution instead is to be on mission as God's people 100% of the time, actively engaging the people around you like Jesus engages you so that you serve them like what like he has served you so that they get a sense of his goodness his attractiveness through you you're doing the same things that other people around you are doing but you're approaching them from a different angle with a different intention and that difference is so striking that it forces people around you when they see you living out your Christian life it forces them to wonder, why would you respond like that? Why would you respond in a way that I can't imagine myself responding? Why would you respond in a way that I, I don't know of anybody who would respond like that? Why would you do that? In other words, as you live out 
your faith in Christ before a watching world, it leads people to chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, you now need to be prepared, always prepared, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Live out your faith before a watching world and opens the door to people asking you about your faith. Why is that? Because they're seeing it in living color as you bring it there. When you take heaven's culture and you bring it into the rest of the world, it catches people's attention. That is part of your mission. And that mission was given to you by the God who rescued you. Where do you learn that heavenly lifestyle? And on top of that, where do you get the support that you're going to need, the energy and the resources to keep living that out in front of people who have a completely different lifestyle? Where do you get that? You practice that lifestyle in the church. That's part of what church is for. Church is not an activity that you do once a week. Church is not a building. Church is not a location that you travel to. Church is not something that you drop into and then drop out of. Church is what? Church is a community. It's a group of people who are living out the radical alternative lifestyle of heaven now. They live it out with each other, this lifestyle that we're now going to live for all of eternity. Church is a community that helps you learn a different way of living than you may have grown up with. It helps you learn a different way of living than you see every day all around you. And it's a community that helps you then to do what God has given you to do. It comes alongside you to comfort you, to strengthen you when you're worn out, when you're discouraged. It comes alongside to encourage you. It's a community that allows you then to do the same for other people who are worn out and discouraged. And so you come alongside others who then are empowered and strengthened to go back into the harsh world that God has sent them into. Now, what do you need to engage in this community and in this lifestyle? I'm going to go through th three things very, very quickly this morning. You need to know first, what is it that empowers you to participate in this community? Second, you need to know what that participating looks like for you as an individual. And then third, you need to have some idea of what the goal of that participation is. So what empowers you to participate? what that participation looks like, and the goal of that participation. First, what empowers you? Chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, Peter makes an assumption there. What is it? It's that each has received a gift. Pay attention to that word each. What does each mean? It means every single one of you. God has equipped every single one of you in some way for the utterly unique, specialized calling that he has on your life. Not only does God give you a specific way for you to fit into his church and into the broader mission of the church, he makes sure that you have everything that you need to carry that out. And so he makes you a steward of his varied grace. Steward, what's a steward? It, he puts you in charge of something, something that you didn't give to yourself, something that you didn't earn for yourself. He makes you a steward, makes you responsible 
for what? For a gift, a gift of his varied grace. Now, when you think about spiritual gifts, don't let yourself think too narrowly here. I don't know if any of you have ever taken one of those spiritual gift inventories. If you have, you know, there's like a hundred questions, and they spread over eight or twelve categories, and as you answer those questions, you start to sort yourself into one or, or more of those categories. Those inventories can be helpful. They give you a little bit of self-knowledge. But you know what those inventories never mention? They never mention that in the New Testament, there are five lists of spiritual gifts. Not one of those five lists is the same. Each list lists different things. More than that, no one gift shows up on all five of those lists And no list has all of the different gifts on it. What's that tell you? It tells you those are example lists. They're not exhaustive lists. They are to provoke you to think and to prod your your own processing of what God has given to you. They're not exhaustive. Maybe if we can just muddy the water a little bit. There's, There's one passage I didn't mention out of those five. In addition to that, there's 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, verse 7, which will talk about a different kind of gift. It'll say marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. Marriage and singleness, not what you mostly find on those spiritual gift inventory questionnaires. And so what does all that mean when you pull all of that together? It means you have to think broader than a few short categories. You have to realize that gifts that God gives are better understood as abilities talents, places in your life where he has given you something that he then turbocharges by his spirit for his purposes. And that something is an expression of his grace. What does God use his grace for? He uses that to restore people, to redeem individuals, and to create a redeemed society of individuals. God takes his grace and then divides it up among his people, gives a grace gift to you for the same purpose, to further his goal. And so that means you can't limit God's varied grace to a few categories on a questionnaire. Instead, you have to think, this is something that God gives so that we can now be the people of God in a very dark world, and it has something to do with how we're going to live out being the community of God for all eternity. So God's grace is not simply to fix problems, things that are broken in us. His grace does that. But his grace also exists to build healthiness, to build a healthy community. One that we participate in now, how? By using the gifts that he's given us. And because God's grace has so so many facets, so many dimensions to it, we need each other in order to live out that grace with each other. God all by himself can express his varied grace, but we can't. God's varied grace is just too big. And so we can only build the kind of community that will establish his mission in this world when we all use what he's given each of us. That means that he has given you something right now, some gift that you need to use, some gift that if you are not using it, we here at Renewal cannot be the community that he calls us to be. 
and we here at Renewal cannot have the mission that he calls us to have. You are needed, and you are needed, and you, and you, and you, and you, and, and all of us, because what he's given each of you is unique, something that nobody else can provide if you don't step up and use that. It's something that you need to use to fit into what he's doing. That's point one. God empowers you to participate in the mission that he's given to his church. Point two, what does that look like? God gives unique individuals gifts that express his varied grace. So we are each as unique in the kingdom of God as your fingerprints are in the history of humanity. There has never been anyone like you before with your unique gifting. And at the same time, there are similarities among people with their giftings. There are unities that draw together our diversity. I can't be you. You can't be me. You can't be the person sitting next to you. And yet we realize that there are some basic common themes among our giftings. Peter breaks them down into word gifts and deed gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, everybody speaks. Everyone serves. Everyone acts. But if you watch each other closely, you'll notice that some tend to speak a little bit more. Some tend to serve a little bit more. Watch even more closely, you'll notice that you tend to be helped when certain people speak, while you tend to be more helped when other people serve you. Both express God's grace, but it's God's grace that enters into your life in two different ways and that benefits you then in different ways. Which means what? You have to have both. You have to receive both. And as part of the body, you have to figure out which one do you tend to fall into, which one of those categories. Let's take them, two, take them one at a time. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, as one who speaks the very words of God, meaning that the words you speak should be shaped and framed by God's words, by his intentions. That means they first have to what? They first have to form and shape you. That part of taking this kind of gift seriously means you have to take the time to study what God has to say. And then you have to let his thoughts and his ideas inform your own so that when you speak, you're not simply taking your ability with words to promote your own ideas, and you're not inadvertently repeating this world's thoughts and ideas, but you're using God's gift to you to bring his perspective into view. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Sometimes this one's a little harder because serving gets a bad reputation in our world. We usually talk about it as something that is forced on someone else when they can't resist it. And so it's imposed on someone who is weaker by someone who is stronger or it's something that you have to do when you don't really have much better options. And so, okay, yeah, you have to wait tables, you have to do manual labor because someone is paying you to do something that they don't want to do. Serving does not have good connotations in our world. It is not elevated to the place where it should be. Here's how we restore it to where it ought to be. Think about it for a moment. 
Who is the one who serves in the universe more than anyone else? And you realize very quickly that that's God. He serves every one of us all the time by giving us everything that we have. He gives us life. He gives us each breath that we have. He gives us each heartbeat. Gives us the food that we eat. He gives us the material that make up our clothes that we wear. All of it comes from him. And if he did not continually, actively serve us, that doesn't mean we would suddenly just become independent, you know, autonomous agents who fend for ourselves. Instead, our lives would simply end if God was not serving us all the time. No one serves like God serves. And no one forces him into it. He chooses it. He did not create human beings to meet his needs. God doesn't have any needs. Father, Son, Holy Spirit continually serve each other so that in our one God, there are no needs. He didn't create us to meet his needs. He's self-sufficient. We are not. We don't grow out of our need for him. Which tells you what? God created us to need him. And in that creating, he created the ongoing need for him to continue to serve us. And God set up the world that way, and he thinks it's a great idea. He is the God who joyfully serves his creation. And what does he do? He makes us in such a way that we can now enter into that kind of serving. It's part of being made in his image, made in his likeness. So we can now know the joy of God-like giving, of experiencing how it really is better to give than to receive. So when God restores us, he puts serving back where it belongs. He restores what we do, not just what we say. And he restores it to the glorious, God-exalting, God-reflecting position that he always intended it to have. Your gift falls broadly into one of those two categories. But then notice something. You've already seen those two categories this morning. Because God takes those categories and uses them to structure his church. It's no accident that the two groups of church leaders that you see in Scripture fall into these two categories. We have elders who are called to the ministry of the word and to prayer, to word gifts, speaking gifts. And we have deacons and deaconesses who are called to deed ministry, serving gifts, different expressions of the varied grace of God, different and both absolutely necessary. Our leaders do the same things that the rest of us are gifted to do, and we can only have a good functioning church when we have leaders in both categories. They lead us well, but they also teach us how to use the gifts that we have. So, for instance, as you talk and interact with Daniel, our new elder, I want you to pay particular close attention to how he uses his grace gift. Notice it and learn from him. Remember what we said at the congregational meeting? He is now Christ's representative to us. He brings God's thoughts and God's words to us. That his words are to convey Christ's mind and heart to us. Daniel, I want you to feel the weight of that. That you don't get to say whatever you like. Frankly, that's true of all the rest of us. None of us are supposed to be unintentional with what we say. But Daniel, you have been called, set apart, to help us hear what that intentionality looks like even more clearly. 
That means what? You're going to have to study, and you're going to have to study hard so that you understand and have the mind and heart of God. And then you're going to have to weigh and measure your words so that we can now hear what you've heard. So here's my plea to you. Please speak to us so that our words learn to be a little bit closer to how Christ would speak if he were in our position. Esther and Grace. Grace, I don't know where you are. Probably serving. Esther, you have a similar calling, you and Grace. It's just as weighty. And it's just as weighty, I would argue, in a world that doesn't see the beauty of serving. And so we read things like Jesus washing his disciples' feet or Jesus saying he was going to lay his life down for his friends or in order to forgive his enemies. We know that. It's hard to find a long line of people who are signing up for that. Maybe you've all heard this saying, everybody wants to be known as a servant until somebody treats you like one. We like the idea of being a servant, but we're not captured, captivated by the reality. Esther, Grace, capture us. We need to see how attractive serving is, how life-giving it is, how fulfilling it is. It's not something ugly, that it's not something beneath us. It's holy, that it comes directly out of God's character and nature. And that when it's done with God's power, it's not merely attractive, it's compelling. Please serve us. Serve us with the strength that God gives you so that we can then join with you as we also learn to serve like God does. That's points one and two. God gives you gifts so that you can participate in his community, and he tells you what that looks like. Which brings us then to point three. What's the goal? Go back through this passage, and you'll notice that the focus is always on who benefits, and it's on each other. Verse 8. Keep loving one another. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another. Verse 10, use your gift to serve one another. Your gift is clearly about others. It's not about you. It doesn't create an identity for you. You can't allow yourself to think, okay, now I finally have worth and value because I'm going to take this gift and I'm going to use it in such a way that I am now known for this. And now I have a place among the people of God. If you're tempted to think like that, you're not going to use your gift like God intends it. His grace always moves outward to others. doesn't move inward to make a name or a place for ourselves. The gifts don't do that because you don't need that. You already have a place among the people of God. It's an incredibly secure place because what Jesus did with his gifts— Jesus came to this earth and he spoke God's word to us. He told us that despite all the wrong ways that you and I have used our gifts, including the gift of our lives, he told us that God still wants us. Jesus spoke God's words and he served us. He gave up everything that he had, including his own life, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came not to clean our feet, he came to clean our souls, to not simply pay for how we've misused the gift of our lives, but to give us a life that we can never lose and to restore to us the things that we misused. And Jesus didn't do that because he had to. 
didn't do that because he needed you. He did it because he loves you, because he wants you. And so he brought you into his kingdom. He made you part of his family. You didn't do that for yourself, which means what? You can't make yourself any more secure than you already are. You can't make yourself more valuable than you already are, which frees you up then to use the gifts that he's given you, to work with them well, to learn how to use them, to learn how not to use them. And when you do it, and you and you and you and you and all of us do this together, then verse 11, God is glorified through Jesus Christ. God has given us everything that we need, Renewal, to be a community that gives a visible picture to the rest of this world of what he's like. You can't see God, but you can see his people. You can see us speaking to each other like God speaks. You can see us serving each other like God serves. When God's people function with his gifts, with his power, we are benefited, but he is glorified. Because now you can see him in ways that you couldn't before, and that's exactly what you and I and the rest of this larger world have to have in order to live well. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have not only come to redeem and to restore, but that you have come to equip, to give us everything that we've ever needed in order to do the work that you've given us to do. Lord, teach us where our place is in your kingdom. Let us embrace that with all of the strength that you provide. Lord, may it bless other people, and most of all, may it bring a smile to your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all rise and respond with a song of praise uh, since it is the power and the authority of Christ which enables us and empowers us to do God's work. Let's praise him the beginning and the end, the ancient of days.